so much, Ben. Let's uh, pray as we come to think about the importance of these words together. Heavenly Father, as Sam prayed earlier on, we pray that you would show us your Son, Jesus, in these coming moments. We pray that in showing us Christ, you would show us yourself, that we would understand more deeply the kind of God that you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot to get through. Um, there's three readings. Uh, but so, so, so try your best to keep going, keep up. Um, but I think that, that there are two key points. And hopefully those two key points, wherever we are in the sermon, you'll be able to remember those two things. Now, Laura and I were watching something last Sunday evening on iPlayer. It's a travel thing called Himalaya with Michael Palin. Those who are a little bit older will know who Michael Palin is. It's quite an old thing now, but it's perfect Sunday evening viewing. It's the kind of thing that you can watch, and it's calming, it's easygoing, it's something you can fall asleep to. So uh, we've been watching it these last few, few weeks. And in his travels across the kind of Himalaya region, Michael Palin comes across a guy who's running a, a huge and successful uh, kind of environmental refuge place, a reserve, a nature reserve with his family. But his thing, when he was younger, this guy was a militant Marxist. And Michael Palin asked him, why did you become a Marxist? What attracted you? And the man said, I wanted to change the world. This is how I thought I was going to do it. I wanted to change the world, so I became a Marxist. And Palin said to him, so what happened? Why did you give up Marxism? And he said, well, I got married. And I discovered I couldn't even change my wife, let alone change the world. And, and then we had a son, and I couldn't change him either. And I realized that in the end, it wasn't the world that needed to change so much, or if the world was going to change, I needed to change first. And Marxism couldn't help me with that. But here is some good news. See, for as long as you are alive, trusting in the Lord Jesus, changing you is Jesus' mission. Just like changing his brothers was Joseph's mission. Now, I said this last time we were in Genesis. In some ways, the story of Genesis could have ended in chapter 42. Jo Joseph is risen from his deathly experience in prison, and he is exalted to second in command of all of Egypt. And then he saves the world from famine. It, it could have ended there. And Joseph could have said to his brothers, come and, come and be with me. Could have reached out to them. Come and be with me. Reign with me. But he doesn't. Instead, there is a delay because before his brothers can reign with Joseph, Joseph wants to change them. And we are like Joseph's brothers. We are living in the delay. Jesus is risen and exalted. But before he calls us to reign with him in glory, he is working to transform us. Changing you is Jesus' mission for as long as you are alive. Let's think about that. In the present, Jesus changes us. First point is going to be by far the longest one. So the famine is raging throughout the land. Jacob's family have already been to Egypt. They've got some food, but that grain has run out. And so now they need to head back. The problem is, the last time they went, they lost another brother, Simeon. And if they want more food, they've been told that they'll have to take Benjamin, their youngest brother, with them. 
But Benjamin's father, Jacob, he cannot bear the thought of losing his youngest son. And he's got good reason to worry, hasn't he? It looks to him that his sons are a bit like our children with gloves and scarves. Every time our kids head out with gloves and scarves, they always end up losing something. Every time Jacob's sons head out together, they always end up losing a brother. And so he says no. And in 43 verses 1 to 7, it seems like a stalemate. Worse than that, it seems like death. Because without food, the whole family will die. And then someone surprising steps in to help. Judah. Chapter 43 verse 8. Judah said to Israel, his father, or Jacob, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame. Now this seems to be a very different kind of Judah. You know, last time we heard from Judah back in chapter 38, again, he was talking about guarantees. But he was offering a guarantee to someone he thought was a prostitute. A guarantee that he would pay her after he slept with her. Same word is used here, guarantee. But this is very different, isn't it? Now he's guaranteeing the safety of Benjamin. And the guarantee is his own life. Blame me. Hold me responsible. Because I think, are these just the desperate words of of Judah? He he knows they're going to die if they don't get food. Is he saying whatever it needs to take to, to get Jacob to let them take Benjamin with them? I guess the question is, has he really changed? And then... We see something similar with the other brothers. They make it to Egypt and Joseph meets them. They they still don't know it's Joseph. And Joseph is kind to them. He invites them back to his palace for dinner. But in the brothers' minds, Joseph is being too kind. Verse 18 of chapter 43. Now the men, the brothers, were frightened when they were taken to Joseph's house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. The brothers are fearing for their lives. So what do they do? They quickly tell the steward, Joseph's servant, everything that happened before. They tell the steward, last time we came, after we left, we found that the money we used to buy the grain was back in our sacks. We didn't put it there, no idea how it got there. Now in the past, the brothers would probably have tried to lie their way out of this situation. But this time, they opt for honesty. And again, the question is, have they really changed? Or are they, like Judah, just desperate? Are they only being upfront and honest because they think that's what's going to save us? Being desperate, like it can be a great motivator for change, can't it? When some character trait, some struggle, some sin, it's destroying 
you and it's destroying other people around you. And it gets to the point where your job is on the line, or your marriage is on the line, or your own sanity is on the line, and you think, that's it, I am going to change. Being desperate can be a great motivator for change, but not always lasting change. Sure, you you make all the right noises, you can take some steps in the right direction, but, but a week, or maybe a month, or even a couple of months goes by, And it doesn't last. Desperation doesn't often lead to lasting change. It may be a good thing to kick us into action. You need more than that. And what Joseph is looking for in his brothers is that deep and lasting change. He wants to root out the worst of their sin. And so he sets up another test for them. They enter the dining hall. And Joseph sits them in age order, verse 33. Now that must have really unsettled the brothers. How did this ruler of Egypt know the age order of the brothers? You know, put me and my three brothers together, and I don't think you could tell who was born first. And that's sad for me because I'm the youngest. I don't like the thought of being the same age as my oldest brother. But Joseph sits them in age order. He unsettles them. But he does it for another reason as well, because he wants to single one of them out, the youngest, Benjamin. Verse 34. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Now, that that wouldn't go down well in our family, although usually it's our youngest, Elijah, who would be outraged if someone has more than him. He asks for another piece of garlic bread, and we say, no, no, you've had enough. And then he watches me take another piece of garlic bread, and his eyes look at me like this. How dare you take another piece of garlic bread, Dad? Benjamin is given more, so much more than anyone else. The youngest son is favored over all the other brothers. Does that remind you of something? It's how Jacob the father of all the brothers, treated Joseph back in Genesis 37. He favored him. And the last time the youngest was favored and privileged, do you remember how the brothers felt? 37 verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. His brothers were jealous of Joseph. And now before their eyes, it is happening again. The youngest brother is being favored. Jealousy is such a powerful emotion. And you can imagine it beginning to bubble up inside them as they watch Benjamin feast his way through all of that food. Jealousy is a poison that will destroy any family any community, any church. That's why Joseph has got to root this out of them. The brothers, because of jealousy, kidnapped and enslaved Joseph. The thinking of the jealous heart is if I can't have it, then neither can you. There's a social experiment called the ultimatum game. In it, the first person is given 100 pounds. 
And they're told that they can divide the money with a second person however they want. The catch is the second person decides whether the deal stands or both walk away with nothing. Now, here's the thing, isn't it? If the first person decides to say, well, I'm going to keep 95 pounds and give five pounds to the second person, well, the second person logically should really just kind of take the five pounds, shouldn't they? They haven't earned the five pounds. It's a gift. You're both still winning. You're both walking away with something more than you had before. But when the experiment is played out, it turns out that most people would prefer to walk away with nothing unless the split is at least 50-50. If I'm only getting five pounds, there's no way I'm going to let you have 95. That is the poison of a jealous heart. If I can't have it, then neither can you. And if you don't root it out, that poison will destroy your family, it will destroy your community, and it will destroy this church. And the thing is, there are always going to be opportunities for jealousy, because the reality is, like Joseph did not give all his brothers the same portion, Jesus doesn't always give us the same. In this room, some will have bigger houses. Some will have better health. Some will have bigger bank balances. Some will have easier children. Some will work less but earn more. Some will have a more straightforward marriage. Jesus does not give us all the same. And he does that partly to help us root out the jealousy and the pride that is the source of that jealousy from our hearts. So what is our reaction going to be when someone has more than us? Will we weep when they are rejoicing? Bitter because we do not have what they have. Or or will our reaction be when someone loses something that we will rejoice when they are weeping? Happy because they have lost something that we wanted. Well, look how Joseph's brothers react. Have they really changed? Or will they weep at Benjamin's joy? And will jealousy overwhelm them again? Verse 34. They feasted and drank freely with him. They got merry. The brothers rejoice with Benjamin. Jealousy has lost its grip on them and it's lost its grip on us when we are able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Every time you notice that someone has more than you or better than you, Jesus is giving you the chance to kill jealousy in your heart before it kills you and destroys others and even destroys this church. So yeah, looks like there's some change going on in the brothers. But then Joseph pushes his brothers further, or at least he pushes one of his brothers even further to a radical transformation. Chapter 44, verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. So Joseph is sending his brothers back 
to Israel. But he has secretly slipped into Benjamin's sack this special silver cup. We're told elsewhere that this silver cup was used by Joseph for divination. It's the idea of being able to predict the future. So so the silver cup is slipped back into Benjamin's sack, and Joseph's servant chases after the brothers, and he accuses them of stealing. They protest their innocence. But the bags are searched. 44 verse 11. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest. You can feel the tension, can't you? He knows it's in the youngest, but he begins with the oldest. The tension is building and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes, loaded their donkeys, and returned. Now, you've got to feel the power of this. You have to see it from the brother's point of view. That the silver cup of divination, that silver cup was used to predict the future and has been found in Benjamin's sack. At this point, the brothers do not know whether Benjamin actually stole it or not. Maybe he did. Maybe Benjamin is trying to set himself up to be like the younger Joseph. Do you remember the younger Joseph had dreams about the future? The younger Joseph prophesied the future. And to the brothers, it could very well look like Benjamin is doing the same, finding some way to prophesy the future. And then, the older Joseph gives the brothers the chance to get rid of Benjamin, just like they got rid of the younger Joseph. 44 verse 17, Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back in peace. Do you see how brilliantly Joseph has set this up? It is the events of 20 years ago all over again. Benjamin, like the younger Joseph, is treated differently. He is favored. Benjamin, like the younger Joseph, looks like he's trying to prophesy the future. And the brothers are given the chance to sell him into slavery. What will they do this time? Have they changed? Or will they sell Benjamin into slavery like this old Joseph? And this, this is where Judah steps in. This is where we see whether Judah is really a different person to who he was back in chapter 38 when he was sleeping with who he thought was a prostitute. In verses 18 to 33, he pleads with Joseph for the sake of his brother Benjamin. He pleads with Joseph for the sake of his father Jacob. And he says to Joseph, don't take Benjamin because it will kill my father. And the climax of his speech comes in verse 33. Have a look. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Just stop for a moment and gaze at the wonder of this. Let the extent of this transformation hit you. In chapter 37, Judah sold his brother into slavery for silver. In chapter 44, 
Judah is willing to enslave himself to save his brother. Let me put this transformation in the starkest way that I can. In chapter 37, Judah foreshadows Judas. Judah sold his brother for silver. Judas sold Jesus for silver. In chapter 44, Judah foreshadows Jesus. Judah gave up his life for his brother. Jesus gave up his life for his brothers and sisters. Joseph is transforming his brothers at the deepest level. And that is what Jesus is doing in your life and my life. One day, you and I will reign with the risen and exalted Christ. But before then, he works on us to change us at the deepest level. And he can take a Judas-like person and turn them into a Jesus-like person. You must see the wonder and beauty of that for your own life. When I get involved in pastoral situations, I nearly always at the beginning will say, there is hope. I don't even need to hear what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the situation is, how dire, how trapped, how impossible change will feel. If Judas-like people can become Jesus-like people, then there is hope. If you are a brother or sister of Jesus, there is hope. It doesn't matter how strong our unwanted sexual desires feel or how stuck in a pattern of behavior that we are. It doesn't matter how disordered our desires are, how warped and perverted the longings of our hearts. None of it is more powerful than your brother, than your king, the risen and ascended Christ. If he can turn Judas-like people into Jesus-like people, there is hope. And that means you must never, ever give up fighting evil and darkness in your heart. Don't ever think, what is the point? Don't ever get comfortable with it. Because it is Jesus' mission to transform you, and he has the power to do it. And so work with all of the strength that the risen Lord Jesus has to put to death the darkness in your heart and in your life. In the present, Jesus is changing us. Secondly, in the future, Jesus welcomes us. So we get to the end of chapter 44, and Joseph can't take it anymore. When Judah offers to give his life for Benjamin, that is enough for Joseph. He's now convinced. His brothers are different. They're not the same brothers who kidnapped and enslaved him. And so, some brilliant words, aren't they? 45 verse 1, let me read. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. The brothers stand before the risen and exalted Joseph. They stand before the person who 20 years previously they had kidnapped, threatened with death, and enslaved. 
And brothers and sisters, one day we will stand before the risen and exalted Jesus. And if we have any self-awareness, any sense of the darkness that's pervaded our hearts and our lives, we will be tempted to react just like Joseph's brothers react. Verse 3, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Can you imagine standing before Jesus in all his wonder and glory? Can you imagine standing before him knowing that he knows everything? Imagine all our thoughts were broadcast on social media. Imagine every moment of anger or lust or greed or jealousy was, was broadcast to the watching world. We wouldn't even be able to face the world. So how are we going to face the risen and exalted Jesus? So yeah, I can understand why terror-induced silence might be my reaction when I stand before Jesus. But it does not need to be that way. Look what Joseph says to his brothers, verse 4. Come close to me. This is how Jesus will greet us. Come near to me. Come close to me. It's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He sees his son returning from a long way off. And he runs towards him and embraces him. Verse 14. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Some people say that there are no tears in heaven. There will be tears in heaven, but tears of utter joy as Jesus embraces his brothers and sisters. We can't shake the feeling sometimes, can we? Come close to me, Jesus, says, says Jesus. And we think, but Jesus, I can't, not with my past, not with my shame and guilt, I can't. So I love what G Joseph says to his brothers in verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. Jesus, I can't come close to you. I've let lust and greed and anger poison my heart. I've lacked courage. I've dishonored your name. I've chosen comfort and ease and sin. Jesus, I can't. And what will he say back to us? Come close to me. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry. I'm not angry with you. Do not be angry with yourselves. I have died for your lust. I've died for your greed. I've died for your anger. I've forgiven you. Come close to me. Um, listen to Spotify uh, quite a bit. One of the things that Charlie Hardy introduced me was Spotify radio. You play a song, click radio, and, and you get all the different kind of other songs of, of that genre. So I was listening to my kind of Paul Zach, kind of, he's a Christian uh, singer, songwriter, and, and this other song comes on. Not really heard it before, it's not really my kind of thing, but it came on as I was preparing this, and I just think it, it fits wonderfully. It's about grace and compassion of Jesus. In the first verse, the singer sings, you can't control your anger, and you're not bad enough. You can't control your greed. You're not bad enough. 
You don't care about anyone except you, yourself, and me. Well, you're not bad enough. And then he sings in the final verse. Jesus said to prostitutes, you're not bad enough. To murderers and thieves, you're not bad enough. Jesus said to sinners, bad as you and bad as me, you are not bad enough. In the future, the risen and exalted Lord Jesus will welcome us. You're not bad enough. I've forgiven you. And of course, what is true in the future is even true now. Because there will be times when you feel a complete and utter spiritual failure, when your life lies in a mess around you. And what does Jesus say to you then? Come near to me. Let me forgive you. Let me heal you. Let me change you. You're not bad enough. And he commands us again to follow, to obey, and to live for him. Brothers and sisters, one day we will reign with Jesus. And then, until then, it is his mission to change us. And it is his mission to convince us how wonderful that welcome will be for those who trust in him. In the present, Jesus is changing us. In the future, he will welcome us. Remember, quiet, I'm going to pray.